Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN LP Chicago. This week, we are highlighting a range of news and ideas that can move us forward in the sediment of the Trump age. On Radio Free Bridgeport, which airs on Tuesdays at 4 p.m., we talk to our local 11th Ward Alderman, Patrick Thompson. Patrick gives his thoughts on how to deal with the Trump administration and also talks about the local crime spike here in Bridgeport. We also talk to John Hancock, Chicago designer and co-curator of the annual Type Force exhibition that features the world's typographic all-stars. It takes place here at the Co-Prosperity Sphere, February 17th through March 4th. Every Tuesday at 2 p.m. is Mario Smith's News from the Service entrance. This week, Mario speaks to some of Chicago's thought leaders about how to counter the Trump administration. And Kiefer Dunn of the architecture show Buildings on Air talks about how politics is manifest in our built environment. Stay tuned for these great segments and more on Lumpen Week in Review. Radio Free Bridgeport is your source for hyperlocal community news. This week, Alderman Patrick Thompson spoke to Radio Free's John Daly and Jamie Trecker about the effect Donald Trump is having on the city of Chicago and what he is doing about a local crime wave. Radio Free Bridgeport airs every Tuesday from 4 to 6 p.m. I think it's disturbing for me as somebody who's in public service. Um, you could disagree with somebody, and in this case you could disagree with uh, the judge, um, but then to, to taunt him and say a so-called judge and, and that name-calling, and I think that behavior isn't becoming of a president or any elected official for that matter. And I think, you know, you have to have respect. You could disagree uh, with the decision, but I, I think that that, uh, you know, some of that behavior just has to stop. You have to start focusing on governing. Who cares about Arnold Schwarzenegger and the TV shows? He goes to a prayer service and he starts talking about things that are totally absurd or the... The size of the crowd of the inauguration is another yeah. issue. Who cares? You're the president of the United States. You're the most powerful person in the world, and we should use that to effectuate change for the positive. And some of these policies that he's uh, instituting right now is, is discouraging. Yeah, Alderman, I wanted to ask you about that specifically because he's criticized the city of Chicago a number of times. Are you concerned about that since he said that uh, there's a you know a massacre going on the street? I'm going to send the feds into Chicago. I'm going to. Stop, you know, I mean, obviously the city of Chicago has had problems with, with shootings and with gunfire. No one's disputing sure. that. But his um, take on the city of Chicago, as expressed in his Twitter feed, it doesn't necessarily match up with the day-to-day reality that, that many of us know. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I heard that he wanted to send in the feds, and, and we welcome any federal support we can get. Um, you know, at first, you know, the scene I was thinking, like, the, the closing scene of the Blues Brothers, where, you know, they come and swarm all over City Hall. Um, but really, where we could use, when President Clinton was uh, president, he and Mayor Daley, uh, they created the community policing. And we had 13,100 employees for the police department back then in the 90s. We also had the assault ban, um, federal law. Uh, so we attacked the crime issue from limiting the, the types of weapons that were really weapons of mass destruction and going after the community policing. The 13,100 weren't all police officers. There were a lot of many... Uh, Lay folks that were out in the community doing the community policing. That's the type of federal money that we need. That's what we need to get into these communities to stop. And it's not only stopping uh, the gun violence, which is horrific, but we've seen a rash of crime in our community recently, and it's very disturbing and, and I'm very concerned. Daytime burglaries, the strong-arm robberies, things in our community that 
normally don't happen, but you're seeing that happen more uh, often, and it's disturbing. Um, we spent, you know, each alderman every year we get uh, $1.3 million of uh, aldermanic menu money to pick infrastructure projects. Last year um, I used uh, about uh, $250,000 of that money to buy 11 pod cameras that we have uh, throughout the ward and coordinated with the police department um, to figure out where the hotspots were based on data. Uh, you know, that's infrastructure that, sure, I'd love federal dollars to help. But what, do you, but what does it mean to you when he says, like, Chicago's like a terrorist state, it's, Iraq, it's like the Middle East, it's like a war zone? It's just more hyperbole and just more fluff, and isn't it irritating? Yeah, you know, he's the president of the entire United States. He should be the biggest cheerleader. There's, I'm the big homer here for our ward. You know, yeah, you have to acknowledge where you have issues and you try to address it, but the way he's so uh, denigrating and, 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 and just negative is uh, that that doesn't help anyone. I mean, if he wants to sit down and come here and have a conversation and talk to the mayor, talk to the alderman, talk to the superintendent, or have his folks come out here, we'd be more than welcome to, the, to, to have the, the resources. Um, you know, the, it's, sometimes the way he goes about things is not, uh, uh, for being a showman, it's not very tactful. <laughs> I wanted to follow up actually with yeah. you because you said uh, there has been an outburst of crime in the neighborhood. Um, obviously, we know about the Bridgeport Bakery being yeah. being held up, uh, family dollar. My house actually, uh, my door was kicked in last week, uh, had six windows smashed. I've lived for 20 years and never seen anything like that. Mm -hmm. My house is actually being rebuilt after a fire. Uh, firemen, by the way, were outstanding in this ward. But what do you think is behind that? Because I've, I've heard a lot of theories about what's going on. I've seen uh, some of the SROs and Archer blamed for it. I'm not sure that's necessarily true. I wanted to get your take on what may be fueling this. Sure. You know, I, I think it's a combination. I, I think that uh, uh, some of the crimes, the burglaries, um, you see uh, you see folks who uh, are desperate there. Uh, you know, it may be addiction. Oftentimes you see, uh, um, see these folks, and, and we've caught a number of folks as well. Some of the neighbors have caught one. One uh, recently last week, it was on the on the news, and you know some of these folks are on on drugs or uh, addicted, and they're going in to burglarize, and they'll rob your, you know, if it's not bolted down, they'll steal something, and they'll sell a weed whacker or a lawnmower for twenty bucks, ten bucks, uh, and and so those are the folks that are desperate. So they're they're the ones that are going in into your garages. My wife had her car; I actually left the the door open, and uh, somebody went in and stole all the change out of the. Center Council. I had the same thing here in yeah. front of the radio station. So, I mean, that, uh, you know, that's, uh, those are just the folks that are real desperate for uh, any dollar they can, any. This is the, do you think this is the opiate crisis we're talking about? Is that what you're mentioning? Or? Yeah, I think it's, you know, the heroin, uh, that, 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 that addiction. And, um, and so that's sad. I mean, we, we've seen that. And, and so uh, that we just have to be very vigilant. And, uh, um, you know, again, if we can get programs for some of those folks. And I don't want to say it's the SROs, I don't want to say it's the homeless folks that we've seen an uptick, especially in part of the ward from 22nd Street to Roosevelt uh, on Ruble and, and Union. Uh, that's become Tent City uh, over there. And again, that, you know, some people are coming in and we know uh, they're coming in from the different suburbs, different communities, uh, and they think they, they're doing uh, the right thing and helping by bringing in tents and other shelter. And that is not what we need for our homeless. What we need for our homeless is 
counseling, whether they have an addiction or if they have mental illness. And, and we've got to help those folks and get them the, the care that they need and not enable them. So uh, that, that's one of the issues. So that's one segment. The other segment, the, the sort of the more dangerous, which are the, you know, the armed robberies, which are just seconds away from an absolute catastrophe. Uh, those are, are folks coming in, again, who seem to be, uh, seem to be desperate. Um, but they know that we have stuff here. They know that our neighbors are, uh, have cell phones or have personal property that is, has some value. And so, you know, guys don't go into areas, into the uh, less uh, affluent or the poor areas because there's not as much to rob where they can come in here and they know, you know, somebody, maybe we, we have our guard down because it's historically safe and at night you're in your phone and all of a sudden you look up. And so we've got to be very conscious uh, of that. Uh, we want to make sure the neighbors are aware of what's going on. But at the same time, you know, we also need, I, I think we need to have more police here. I'm advocating. I, I was talking to another alderman today from the north side, and he has the same issues in his ward. And these are all sort of safe, uh, good areas um, that, you know, we want to see the thousand new policemen that get hired in the next two years. I want to make sure they're coming to our area as well, uh, because we need to make sure that those those crimes that, you know, compared to some communities might not seem that severe, but for us, it's a huge issue. Armed robberies, burglaries, all of that is a big issue. So we want to make sure people have the confidence. Statistically, we are safe. Uh, there's, we've la- lost the confidence. So we want to make sure that people feel safe as well as statistically are safe. The eighth edition of Type Force kicks off February 17 at the Co-Prosperity Sphere. Type Force is the annual showcase for emerging typographic artists. Co-curator Don Hancock of Firebelly spoke recently with John Daly and Jamie Trecker for Lumpen Week in Review. Welcome back. This is John Daly. We're here with Don Hancock, and we're talking today about Firebelly Design and the event coming up, which is called Type Force. This is the eighth annual. Don, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for being here. So, you know, when we were talking a little bit earlier, we were talking about design, why it's important. Uh, and and basically the the purpose of uh, Firebelly Design. Tell us a little bit about its history. Yeah, so sure. For Firebelly, um, our studio has been around for about 18 years now. Um, We've always focused on design for good, which in this climate is uh, very important these days. It's uh, everything from branding and uh, ad campaigns to um, websites and experience design. And Typeverse is actually an example of one of those experience design projects that we kind of self-initiated within the studio, realizing there was a need and wanting to kind of create an opportunity for the design community. So the, the first annual Type Force, give us a little bit of the setting from that event. Yeah, so um, so Ed Marzuski and I came together to kind of realize that uh, there wasn't an opportunity for designers or even type-based artists to really showcase the work that they were doing in the city. And we also saw a lot of people feeling like they had to kind of head to New York or L.A. or just somewhere where there was a scene happening. And so both of us really felt like we wanted to keep things going on in Chicago, showcase the people were here. And so the first year we selected uh, about 25 different artists who we felt were doing really interesting work and didn't know what was going to happen. We ended up with um, probably 700 people that came to the opening night, realized we had something special, created a really cool book out of it uh, in the end, and it's basically been uh, growing ever since. So eight years later, thinking about the, the folks who might not necessarily 
be consuming design or even though we're obviously it's everywhere and influencing people's decisions, whether they realize it or not, what should they be looking for when they come to the eighth annual? Well, this year should be pretty interesting. Um, obviously, we're in a pretty interesting political climate right now, so you can imagine there'll be some pieces that are related to that. Uh, we'll also have some you know, technology that is uh, pushing boundaries. We've got a piece that's uh, a virtual reality headset sort of experience type in, in, another, in another dimension, which I think will be pretty cool. Um, there's also a lot of different, just really beautiful pieces created out of interesting materials and, um, of course, things that just are really thoughtful and, you know, meaningful for, you know, whatever the artist was doing at that point. Last year, you guys did a LED installation right in, in the front of Co-Prosperity Sphere. Um, so I know technology is something that's kind of constantly, obviously, evolving and something that you're incorporating into the pieces. What have been some of the other kind of historic pieces that, that come to mind? Yeah, so... Um, you're talking about the front window display, which is something that um, the team at Firebell usually does every year. And uh, so that's an example of, of last year was LEDs and servos and um, Arduino computers kind of making these crazy seven digital clock looking displays. Um, we've even done things that we go way back in time to things like cement and uh, created a concrete letter forms that look like uh, they were from Roman Empire. Uh, we've really done a wide range of things in that capacity and part of the experience of that uh, that's really fun for us at least at Firebelly is those types of things influence the work that we do with our clients so we get to try out really interesting things so this year you'll see um, some more uh, LEDs that are kind of a pullover from what we did last year but also into a new experience um, talking about the political climate and kind of creating a reset clock uh, for what's going on. As you mentioned the political climate. I wanted to talk about that. How do you think type-based art and art in general can push back against the current political climate? You mentioned it now three or four times, so I kind of wanted to get you <laughs> sure. to talk about that. No, yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, obviously you see uh, everything that's going on around us with um, all of the protests and everything, and type is a huge part of that. Your signs that you're creating for those, I mean, it's so simple, but you don't have to be a designer to be making statements, and type is a big part of that. And so... Uh, while we don't necessarily have a piece in the show this year that is like a is protest sign per se, there's certainly things, and I think a lot of us um, just in general, that handmade feel of creating something that you feel so passionate about and um, that speaks to the cause that you're really, um, you know, behind. I think it's really a great thing to do, and designer or not, um, type is a part of your life, and using it to say something is really important. Are there certain types or certain campaigns, political or action, uh, that you can think of that really kind of conveyed messages well or, or kind of transcended the actual message? I mean, you know, while Obama's uh, symbol of hope was that sort of horizon um, in his logo, he that word hope just inherently is, I think of him. And it's such a simple word and any person in you know the political office in history could have used that as a uh, as a message but most people went the other way as we've seen this year where you know make make America great again I don't think that's where we're headed unfortunately but um, but I think what Obama did and because he had such a, a savvy team of designers and obviously smart artists and folks who were helping the cause I mean just that word hope really pushed uh, all of us to really believe something when you were selecting uh, the folks for this year, was there a certain theme you were looking for or a certain uh, uh, common thread that you were looking at? 
Well, I think with every year, we really try to pick a lot of different types of work and are consciously picking folks who are from different areas. So Type Force has always been about trying to show show off folks who don't get that opportunity. So it's not about the 50-year-old designer who's been doing this for, you know, 20 years or 40 years or whatever. It's about um, it's about showcasing the younger folks. And so with that, we try to showcase also diversity in the types of people, in the types of um actual work itself so you'll see things that are you know sculptural you'll see things that are paintings you'll see things that are um, all digital it's really a wide range Um, and that's always been the case and this year I think it's you know we were even more conscious about that given everything going on and I I, you know I really want to kind of talk about one thing I um, I said I wasn't going to talk about the specific artist but there's a piece that actually comes to mind um, that we felt really strongly about showing this year which is from a woman who is showing Syrian newspapers um, and kind of redacted statements and things that the way that they're kind of portrayed out in, you know, in Syria. And I think that piece in general for me was, it said a lot. Um, And she's Syrian and, you know, it just is a really interesting um, story behind it. I think that gained more like importance after the ban on refugees and Muslims in general coming over? It's interesting because obviously we selected these works before that'll happen. Um, But yeah, now that, you know, now that you say that, I'm sure it's going to have even bigger impact for sure. Is there typeface that folks putting together protest signs and and creating actions should be using emphatically? (laughs) Please just don't use Comic Sans. Uh, (laughs) Other than that, you're, you're probably okay. Comic Sans is is, Comic is, Sans going. is out. It's, it's bad news. You know, you mentioned uh, the typography of Obama, and you you alluded to typography of Trump. That was almost anti-typography. It's possibly <laughs> the ugliest yeah. logo. And I wondered, I wanted to get your opinion on that because it seemed a very conscious decision. He stole a motto from a former politician, Ronald Reagan, repurposed it, and there's almost no art. In it at all do you think that was a deliberate thing to kind of appeal to his i don't think he does anything deliberate i think he's just off the cuff whatever you know i don't know he's not that smart frankly so <laughs> if he was that smart maybe but I, I feel like he probably uh i don't know think about the logo when pence joined the team that, was, that was nobody th- nobody thought about what that was going to look like that's a fair so. point Donna. that's a fair point no i just wondered <laughs> if, if if you thought that that at all he uh that at all, you know, that was a. Con- I, I wondered if you thought at all there was any conscious effort because obviously Obama's campaign did have that high design element. It did appeal to, I would think, a thinking yeah, person. Yeah. And Trump's campaign was very anti-intellectual, and still is. So. Yeah, I mean, maybe I don't know. I don't think of anything he does really as a um, savvy in that way. He's just. I don't know. I, I I'd be shocked if he thought let's keep it really lowbrow because. That's how the people we're trying to appeal to will respond. Like I, it just doesn't doesn't make sense to me that he would think that thoughtfully about it. You mentioned the desire to really highlight folks that are doing great work here in Chicago, and that's something that we've heard kind of throughout. The, and one of the themes that we hear from a lot of artists and musicians and 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 other folks is there anything that's unique to Chicago when you look at design around the city? There's the municipal device and other things that we see probably don't even notice on a regular basis. Are there things that are uniquely Chicago that you enjoy and obviously keep you here? Well, I mean, the Midwest in general has that, you know, great work ethic that I think is important to, you know, the design culture in our city. It's, it's very different than New York. It's not cutthroat. We all want to help each other. We all really want to support one another. And I feel like Typhorce is a great example of that just inherently because it's not about Fire Belly or 
public media institute or lumpen or any of these things it was it was simply about like let's really get some people together and showcase great work um and that feels kind of unique to chicago and it's interesting because i think we've we've actually brought in artists from other cities and they always say this is really cool you wouldn't see this in new york you don't you know this is a very different experience people don't work like this together and they, you don't see the kind of diversity um that come out for the opening and throughout the show uh at other design events either, so it's kind of special. Why then do you think people feel the need to leave Chicago to go to other places? I don't know. I think they always think the grass is greener, unfortunately. <laughs> I think, And then, you know, sometimes they realize that uh, that actually isn't the case, and they end up back here. So as people come out to Co-Prosperity Sphere over the next weekend, what should they be looking for for our type force? Well, I think... Uh, First is a great party. It's always a fun night. There's tons of people that show up. You'll see a lot of interesting, uh, interesting folks. Um, the work itself should be pretty uh, across the board unique. You know, there's only one artist in this show this year that's actually been in other shows, which I, you know, we try again hard to to make sure we create create you know new people, new stuff every year. Um, so I think it'll be a really interesting show. The wide variety of stuff for folks that come out that are inspired. What would you suggest they? Uh, how how can they connect with the design community, and what would they? What should they look at next? Well, I mean, Chicago design community has a lot of different facets to it. There's um, there's organizations that are a little more um, specific, like AIGA or the STA, so they can get involved in those. Those are great places to see and hear speakers, go to events, meet other people. Um, something like Type Force is kind of just a one once a year sort of experience. So if they miss it this time, they're not coming. They're not getting a chance until. Uh, next February. So hopefully they'll make it out this year. So tell us a little bit about uh, the actual event. What what are the dates? When should people come out? So the opening is uh, Friday, uh, February 17th. It's uh, from 6 p.m. till 11 p.m., although we usually probably go a little later than that. Uh, and then it runs for the next two weeks, which uh, I think is March third is the closing for it and there's probably going to be a closing party at some point towards the end of that uh, ending week as well mario smith talks with the movers and shakers from all walks of life every week on news from the service entrance anton seals jr torrence moore and mark payne join the show this week to speak about leading chicago forward in this deeply charged and changing political climate resistance is not futile news from the service entrance airs every thursday from 2 to 4 p.m WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpin' Radio News from the Service Interest, the radio show. Good afternoon, everybody, live from Bridgeport Studio B in the co-prosperity sphere. It's your host, Mario, and man, here we go. So, Anton, Brother Payne, my concern is here, right? Right. Because you said it at the beginning. We used, I know for a fact that I investigated out of the 77 neighborhoods in Chicago when I was a shorty, at least 60 of them. Yeah. I know it all day long. Super (laughs) transfer, get on the bus. Where are we going? We're going here. We're going there. Where can't we go? We can't go to Bridgeport. We can't go to this neighborhood. But we're going to go anyway. We're going. Right. Right? That simply does not happen anymore. And I'm I'm trying to get, how do you get that back? And what what is it? (laughs) Because this is about solutions and not necessarily always hammering the fact that there's a problem. But what do we do? Is what do we as a as a community, this bigger 
picture community of everybody, not just black folks, not just Latinos. What do we do? Well, right? I think that gets to another issue that's kind of hard to put measures around, which is kind of the, the soul and the spirit, the kind of desires that collectively we all have in terms of the kind of city and the kind of neighborhood that we want to grow up in. So I think one of the things that was so powerful around Trump's campaign was that he he really applied to the senses of people saying, let's make America great again. Similar to what we're saying here is that we want to make Chicago something that it was, that we had this great experience, and I want to be able to have my children. And it's a great motivator for people because mm -hmm. they are then able to say, no one's been able to harness that politically here. Uh, part of the issue that we have in Chicago is that we've had a machine even though it's changed, so it's not the, the old school kind of democratic machine where people are, but it's still nonetheless a machine. And the disparities that we have in, this, in the city have only grown mm -hmm. uh, even since we've had this uh, Mayor Emanuel, mm -hmm. right? So I think his approach, his kind of attitude towards how to deal with these large societal issues has been off. He's missed a lot of the great opportunities to kind of bring people together with, without this kind of... Um, um, you know, headline-seeking kind of effort where it's really genuine and someone's kind of really advocating for the little guys. Like, who is making sure that these young people who are coming from, you know, whatever the background is, want to keep Chicago as their home, want to invest? There isn't much there that talks about that if you live on the South and West Side. We end up talking right. more so about how bad it is right. and how violent it is. So back to your, your, your initial question is that... It, you know, as Mark said, this is a system. So you always have a responsibility as a citizen to be engaged because when you step away and not be engaged. Now, it's just like playing cards. That does not mean that, that is your guy. Right. You know what I mean? That is not, <laughs> right, you know, right. I think what we have to realize both in the black community and the Latino community is that we have more spades in our hand than we think we do. <laughs> You know, mm, and then mm. we need to play those cards wisely, mm -hmm. right? So if we, as you play spades, you Trump tight. Trump tight. We Trump tight over here. You know right. what I mean? That's like, right. you're not backing me off of my land. Right. I got a lot of possibles you here. You got a lot of possibles. I got a lot of possibles. <laughs> strong possibles. I got, I got seven. Right. Six and strong. they dealing them like, you know, the, the way that you think of it is like you got a, 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 a hand of hearts, right. a hand of diamonds. You're like, no, I got like five trumps. <laughs> you know, the other interesting thing is that you talk about these 60 neighborhoods that you went to. And At least. As you think about those neighborhoods, as I think about those neighborhoods, I remember going to those neighborhoods and there was investment in neighborhoods or there was strong st institutions that you knew. So if you went to... Uh, if you went to the low end, you know, maybe there was a Holy Angel school that was a strong standing institution that helped put the glue in those neighborhoods mm -hmm. together. And what you're seeing in a lot of these neighborhoods, that those institutions, either they weren't invested in, the business is disappearing, um, and you don't have those strong sort of personalities, that glue holding those neighborhoods together. And so I think that's one of the things you talk about what we do, investment in neighborhoods. Um, to really push, to, you know, to, you got to invest in neighborhoods. You know, Gary Chico. When he ran for mayor, the thing that made me vote for him was he said, I want to reverse this from it being downtown, giving it to the neighborhoods. I want the neighborhoods to function well enough and to have enough industry in them to bring it back to downtown. Is that something that is still viable, you think? And with this viability, how come 
This has not been brought mm-hmm. up since it was brought up. Because I think you know, I think part of it is the because of the kind of leadership that you that we've elected. Mm. You know, these elections have consequences. I mean, Rahm Emanuel is a corporate Democrat, aka a neoliberal, has a neoliberal kind of agenda. In in that tent in the Democratic Party, we're seeing that kind of break up right now, where you hear way more progressive voices trying to emerge. The issue is is that we're dealing in a, a, a time nationally where you have the retraction of government services mm-hmm. and relying much more heavily on uh, private industry, which has grown extremely sh- stronger since the Reagan years. Mm-hmm. So we have a mismatch, and that's what's playing out in our politics, where it doesn't move to meet the people where they need. And so what we end up doing is kind of selling people these goods of, like, this is the road back to yesteryear, and a lot of it is false because right. we, we haven't been thinking about you know, here's new roads to a new tomorrow. But sitting in a space like this, I would highlight, though, that while we're talking about all this that's happening, just like it was happening in the 90s, that there were all this other, there was a lot of other stuff that was happening just as well, mm-hmm. that was just as powerful that emerged. You know what I mean? So there was a there was a scene, there was a house music scene that was that kept everybody kind of interconnected throughout the city. So mm-hmm. you would travel two or three in the mm-hmm. clock in the morning on the train. Yes, sir. And you didn't have to be a, a mole or a GD and fear like you were going to die. You know there was a sense of danger, right? And your parents wouldn't feel like if he goes out, some random thing may happen. Yeah, that's kind of what's happening That's now. what's happened now. Yeah. But I think even in face of that, I've got you know my, all of my godchildren who are now in their you know 20s, you know, who they also still are socializing and doing what they need to do because – that's what we do. We are resilient to whatever the face is. True. So I think lifting that kind of stuff up that's happened, this kind of emergence of this new kind of black artist scene that has emerged with Chance the Rapper and No Name and um, uh, what's his brother? Remember um, when that girl was a baby? Yeah. And, you know, all these people <laughs> who are bringing new voices, new vibrancy to the city. So all is not lost. I think we have an opportunity to turn the page around you know, who's really our friend, who's advocating for us. And I think the likes of, and it's not just Rahm Emanuel. I, I have to say, it's not just him. I think one of the lessons that I learned early on around politics is like, when you vote that person in, you bring in all of their people. Right. Right. And their people have a certain attitude and disposition around how they see governance. And it's they don't see governance in the way we're talking about it. We don't, we're not talking about providing for more. They're looking for ways that they could save money so they don't have to provide for more. Right. That's what's motivating them. They're not motivated by let's resolving this issue. They're just band-aiding stuff. Or in their I've heard this come out of their mouths. Let's just, stop band-aiding things. Let's just rip the band-aid off because it's time to stop. You know, there's some hard truths. But I think the public has to now rip the band-aid off of you know, the kind of corporate kind of sponsorships and philanthropic kind of control of these neighborhoods. And we need real government investment in our neighbors if we want to be serious about fighting crime. I want to talk more about that. I also want to talk about the uh, work that is being done, what the things that are tangible and uh, how people can get involved. Yeah. Without mm-hmm. violating rule number one. It's news from the service interest <laughs> radio show. Yes, you know, on WLPNLP okay. Chicago. <laughs> Gotta keep it together, brother. Gotta be here for a while. The Trump Diaries. 
Day 14, February 3rd. Trump mounted an all-out assault on financial regulations, saying he was going to dismantle much of the framework enacted in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Trump signed a directive calling for a rewriting of major provisions of the Dodd-Frank Act and called for a repeal of the rule that requires brokers to act in a client's best interest when providing retirement advice. Those moves were ironic coming from a president who campaigned as the champion of the working class. Said Trump, we expect to be cutting a lot out of Dodd-Frank because, frankly, I have so many people, friends of mine that had nice businesses, they can't borrow money. Financial experts say loans to businesses have been smooth and easy since 2008. A lawyer for the government told a federal court that more than 100,000 visas have been revoked as part of the Muslim ban. That admission drew gasps, and the judge in the case, Leonie M. Brinkema of Federal District Court in Alexandria, bluntly said the order was causing chaos. The State Department apparently canceled almost all visas from the seven countries targeted by the Muslim ban. The Trump administration also imposed sanctions on Iran following its recent ballistic missile test. The Treasury Department announced the measures against 13 people and one dozen companies. Rand responded by saying it will not yield to, quote, useless American threats from an inexperienced person. These are the first sanctions of Trump's new presidency and came a day after he said nothing is off the table in dealing with Iran. And Kellyanne Conway was widely ridiculed after blaming two Iraqi refugees for a massacre that never happened. Conway cited a fictitious Bowling Green massacre in an interview backing the Muslim ban. Conway told Chris Matthews, her interviewer, quote, I bet it's a brand new information to people that Obama had a six-month ban on the Iraqi refugee program after two Iraqis came here to this country, were radicalized, and they were the masterminds behind the Bowling Green Massacre. Most people don't know that because it didn't get covered. It didn't get covered because there was no such massacre. In related news, someone registered a website for BowlingGreenMassacre.com. Visitors to it found them redirected to the donations page for the ACLU. And late in the day, a federal judge in Seattle temporarily blocked President Trump's weak-old immigration order from being enforced nationwide, reopening America's door to visa holders affected by the Muslim ban. The White House vowed to fight what it called a, quote, outrageous ruling, saying it would seek an emergency halt to the judge's order as soon as possible and restore the president's, quote, lawful and appropriate order. The statement said the president's order is intended to protect the homeland and he has the constitutional authority and responsibility to protect the American people. The Attorney General of Washington State, Bob Ferguson, responded, We are a nation of laws. No one is above the law. Day 15, February 4th. Airlines that had been stopping travelers from boarding planes to the United States were told by the government in a conference call to begin allowing them to fly. In a series of tweets early on Saturday, Trump wrote, quote, The opinion of this so-called judge, which essentially takes law enforcement away from our country, is ridiculous and will be overturned. When a country is no longer to say who can and who cannot come in and out, especially for reasons of safety and security, big trouble. Interesting that certain Middle Eastern countries agree with the ban. They know if certain people are allowed in, it's death and destruction. And Trump, asked by an interviewer on Saturday why he respected President Vladimir Putin of Russia, even though he is, quote, a killer, equated the Russian leader's actions with those in the United States. you got a lot of killers, Trump told Bill O'Reilly of Fox News. What, you think our country is so innocent? And Kellyanne Conway was barred from CNN and other outlets. CNN said Conway had proved herself not to be a credible source. Conway had attempted to walk back her assertions on the totally fictitious Bowling Green Massacre, claiming she had misspoken. That was also a lie. A review of records showed she had made the exact same false claims to other outlets, including TMZ. Day 16, February 5th. A federal appeals court rejected a request by justice to immediately restore Trump's targeted Muslim ban, deepening the legal showdown over the president's effort to tighten the nation's borders. The ruling meant that travelers affected by the Muslim ban, as well as vetted refugees from all nations, could enter the country. 
And the White House backed off on reopening overseas black site prisons where the CIA once tortured terrorism subjects after a leaked draft executive order prompted by partisan pushback from Congress and cabinet officials. That same draft order seeks to make greater use of the military's Guantanamo Bay prison, which the Obama administration had tried to close. And Saturday Night Live made vicious fun of Sean Spicer with Melissa McCarthy portraying the press secretary as an adult violent liar. The portrayal was widely seen as a killer bit, and unusually, the Trump administration, quick to react, did not respond. Insiders say Trump was furious with the portrayal mainly because Spicer had been played by a woman, and therefore, in his eyes, looked weak. Reports later on in the week said that Spicer may be fired by Trump. Day 17, February 6th. Trump on Monday falsely asserted that the news media was playing down the terrorist threat posed by the Islamic State, telling American military personnel that journalists were reluctant to report on the group's attacks in Europe. Trump said, all over Europe it's happening. It's gotten to a point where it's not even being reported. And in many cases, the very, very dishonest press doesn't want to report it. They have their reasons and you understand that. In response, outlets from the BBC to the New York Times and USA Today reprinted extensive logs that showed, in fact, the media had covered the attacks in great detail. Later that evening, the White House released a list of what it said were 78 attacks from September 2014 to December 2016 that were carried out or inspired by ISIS. Observers quickly noted that the attacks, of course, had been covered, but also that the White House had admitted any mention of attacks carried out by white supremacists, including a recent attack on a Quebec mosque. And the UK Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko, publicly opposed what normally would be a dry state visit from Trump to Parliament, citing his opposition to racism and sexism. Those comments added to a swelling controversy over Trump's planned state visit. More than 1.8 million people have signed a petition urging the government to cancel Trump's trip. The British Prime Minister, Theresa May, has insisted that the invitation to Trump stands. Day 18, February 7th. The Senate confirmed Betsy DeVos as the Education Secretary, approving the nominee only with the help of a historic tie-breaking vote from Vice President Mike Pence. The 51-50 vote elevated a wealthy donor who has been bluntly criticized as unprepared to be steward of the nation's schools. Two Republicans did vote against DeVos. It was the first time that a vice president had been summoned to the Capitol to break a tie in a cabinet nomination and the first time that a vice president had cast a tie-breaking vote since 2008. In a lawsuit filed by Melania Trump depicted her heightened profile as, quote, a once unique, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to make millions of dollars in business. Mrs. Trump's suit, filed on Monday in New York State Court, accuses the Daily Mail, a British tabloid of libel, for reporting claims that a modeling agency she worked for in the 1990s was also an escort service. Because of the Daily Mail article, Trump's suit says, quote, plaintiff's brand has lost significant value, greatly reducing those opportunities. It is claiming $150 million in damages. A spokeswoman for Mrs. Trump said she was not trying to make money from her role as First Lady. And the Army approved the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. That move drew outrage from opponents, including the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, whose reservation in North Dakota sits less than a mile from the proposed pipeline route. The chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux vows to fight it in court. And Yemen withdrew permission for the USA to run special ops against suspected terrorist groups in the country, a major setback for Trump's young administration. Children were killed during Trump's first commando raid, a 50-minute attack that also killed a U.S. serviceman from Peoria, Illinois. Sean Spicer insisted the attack was a success, but the move by Yemen is clearly a setback. And Republican senators voted to formally silence Elizabeth Warren for her comments on Jeff Sessions of Alabama. Warren had condemned Sessions' nomination for the Attorney General by reading a letter from Coretta Scott King. 
Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, objected to the passages, setting off an extraordinary confrontation in the Capitol. Fallout has been fierce on social media, with many noting that the move simply amplified Warren's comments. And Trump's advisors are debating designating the Muslim Brotherhood as a foreign terrorist organization targeting the oldest and most influential Islamist group in the Middle East. A political and social organization with millions of followers, the Brotherhood officially renounced violence decades ago and won elections in Egypt in 2011. Some advisors to Trump have viewed the Brotherhood as a radical faction secretly infiltrating the United States to promote Sharia law. There is no proof for this bizarre assertion. Day 19, February 8th. Trump lashed out at the judicial branch for considering challenges to his executive order banning travel from seven predominantly Muslim countries. Trump asserted that politically motivated judges had held a disgraceful federal appeals court hearing on the matter. Quote, I don't want to ever call a court biased, so I won't call us biased, Trump told a gathering of sheriffs and police chiefs in Washington. Quote, but courts seem to be so political and it would be so great for our justice system if they would be able to read a statement and do what's right. Mr. Trump opened his remarks reciting the passages of the United States Code that gives the president the power to restrict immigration whenever he deems the influx of foreigners detrimental to the country. Trump also said he had watched in amazement as a three-judge federal appeals panel heard arguments on his executive order. Quote, I listened to a bunch of stuff last night on television that was disgraceful, Mr. Trump said. I think it's sad. I think it's a sad day. I think our security is at risk today. Mr. Trump also lashed out at Nordstrom for dropping his daughter Ivanka's clothing and accessories line, once again raising questions about the relationship between the president and his family's business, saying in a tweet, quote, my daughter Ivanka has been treated so unfairly by Nordstrom. She's a great person, always pushing me to do the right thing. Terrible. Nordstrom, the department store chain, said that it was dropping the Ivanka Trump line basically just on sales performance. The campaign, however, using the hashtag, quote, grab your wallet, has encouraged shoppers to boycott products with ties to Mr. Trump, his family, and his donors. They called the Nordstrom announcement a victory. Day 20, February 9th. Trump again ripped into Chicago, asserting that many of the city's problems are caused by gang members, quote, many of whom are not even legally in our country. Again, addressing a conference of police chiefs and sheriffs, Trump urged them to turn in bad actors to Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly. I want you to turn in the bad ones, Trump said. Call Secretary Kelly's representatives and we'll get them out of our country and bring them back to where they come from and we'll do it fast. You have to call the federal government because so much of the problems, you look at Chicago and you look at other places, so many of the problems are caused by gang members, many of whom are not even legally in our country. Trump offered no evidence for this claim. And Trump also said in Chicago, more than 4,000 people were shot last year alone. And the rate so far this year has been even higher. What is going on in Chicago? In fact, according to the Chicago Tribune, while shootings are up about 8% this year, homicides are down 20%. And a Defense Department may rent space in Trump Tower, which raises even more questions about Trump's conflicts of interest. An official said the move might be necessary to support the day-to-day -day operations for the president and his staff. The Pentagon acknowledged they were in negotiations with Trump. And Trump's approval ratings continue to crater. According to Gallup, only 42% of Americans approve of his performance, with a record 52% disapproving of his performance. This is the Trump Diaries. The following is Coretta Scott King's letter that got Senator Elizabeth Warren silenced this week. March 19, 1986. Dear Senator Thursmond, I write to express my sincere opposition to the confirmation of Jefferson B. Sessions as a federal district court judge for the Southern District of Alabama. My professional and personal roots in Alabama are deep and lasting. Anyone who has used the power of his office as United States Attorney to intimidate and chill the free exercise 
of the ballot by citizens should not be elevated to our courts. Mr. Sessions has used the awesome powers of his office in a shabby attempt to intimidate and frighten elderly black voters. For this reprehensible conduct, he should not be rewarded with a federal judgeship. I regret that a long-standing commitment prevents me from appearing in person to testify against this nominee. However, I have attached a copy of my statement opposing Mr. Sessions' confirmation, and I request that my statement, as well as this letter, be made a part of the hearing record. I do sincerely urge you to oppose a confirmation of Mr. Sessions. Sincerely, Coretta Scott King. Buildings on Air is a show that demystifies architecture through good conversation with a healthy dose of progressive perspective. This week, host Kiefer Dunn had a chat with architecture educators Eric Ellingson, Leslie Johnson, and Wukash Kowalczyk about politics in the classroom and how politics are manifest in our built environment. Buildings on Air airs the first Saturday of every month from 2 to 4 p.m. And this is Buildings on Air, the show where we talk about architecture and politics. And we've got a really exciting show lined up today. Um, I'm joined in the studio by uh, Eric Ellingson, Leslie Johnson, and Luke. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not good at the, the Polish Kowalczyk. last name. I know, Kowalczyk. I've lived in Chicago for years and years still. <laughs> um, so, uh, hi, Eric. <laughs> Leslie, Luke. Hello. How's hi. it going? Hi. So, uh, you know, we just, we just got some coffee, and uh, we are talking about all the different ways in which architecture can be political, which are sort of myriad and, and confusing. But, you know, I think um, we've got a lot of people who are kind of maybe, maybe curious about, about some of these things. So, um, you know, I, Leslie, you were talking about sort of architectural institutions, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious if maybe you guys want to jump in. Well, you were asking us to talk about politics in the context of architectural education, because the three of us are educators, at least I think for, first and foremost, I think, not to speak for everyone else. Um, you know, so our day-to-day -day is thinking about how people become architects, how they think like architects, structures of learning, but I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, a, an architectural education is within an institution, right? and institutions have political positions, even if they're not allowed to talk about them. Um, but I think there's an even larger one, which is the idea that architects uh, have to go through a long years of education, both in a formal school and also, you know, after school. And that in and of itself does kind of weed out a particular diversity, um, if nothing else, just for cost. <laughs> right. uh, <laughs> and, and even if you go through the, the education, you graduate with loans, that makes you make decisions about where you work and who you work for um, based on what you owe. And I think that does color the way that we think about architecture uh, broadly, not to hog the mic here. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good point because it's like, uh, you know, if we're talking about architecture for the community and for the well-being right. of, of so many people, um, you know, those institutional barriers kind of keep the community from becoming architects, right? <laughs> and I, I uh, think that's very <laughs> true, actually. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, licensing exams are uh, very, very expensive. Um, and that comes at the tail end of a, a tremendous investment of time and effort. Um, and obviously, practice is is deeply is deeply political. Um, what jobs you get or don't get, right? Um, and how you find out about them. 
um, is very much about being embedded in a you know class structure and an economic structure. It's who you know and how you know them. Um, so before you even start, you know, putting two bricks together, um, there's there's all of that, and which jobs you seek out, which ones you don't, and to what extent the um, politics of the client, if there is one, and there usually is one, um, you know, are something that you uh, are in a way, uh, you know, tied to and tied down by. Um, so all of that makes, I think, uh, working in the built environment a, a deeply, in a way, fundamentally uh, political practice rather than, you know, tangentially so. And it's probably important to point out that most of the students who are entering architecture school, and I do deal mostly with the foundation level t uh, students, you know, don't don't think of architecture as a, as a kind of politically fraught field. Um, I think they think about the form, they think about the material, they think about, you know, um, all of that, and, and maybe sustainability is, is something that they think about as having, as being part of the value system, uh, but there's so much more. Right. Yeah, and Eric, your, your practice um, and the things that you do as an educator, it's very focused on sort of like uh, collaboration and, and getting, getting groups together to kind of come, come up with some sort of greater project and endeavor. Mm. Um, and, and that to me seems almost kind of inherently political, right? Mm -hmm. in, in a world where um, so, many, so many forces and, and bigger things and pressures mm -hmm. of society are kind of just simply alienating. Yeah, and so I'm I'm wondering if if yeah you can maybe give some examples from your practice or, or think talk about the ways in which you uh, sort of think think through those those problematics. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I you know my my this is a lot of my thinking happens to I think it it takes place through a kind of um, conditioning, uh, trying to work in the conditions through which options evolve. Right. Right. So as architects or as architecture students or as just citizens that have some, um, um, not just opinion, but want in the experience of actually participating in the design of their community, whether that's like um, having uh, not architects design for you, but rather with you, right? Mm -hmm. um, something that starts to reflect your values if you're a community, whether it's a memorial put into a place or a park or a garden or building or a street, and as we know, maybe we've talked about this a little bit before, but someone like Virilio talks about the politics happening not in the streets, but it is the streets. Hmm. And architects are designing, or let's say urban planners, architects, landscape architects. I mean, we work in the realm of, um, we endorse systems that we're not conscious of supporting often by the materials we choose. Mm -hmm. We, as we were talking about just a few minutes ago with coffee, we we kind of teach how to learn rather than necessarily a, a content or information that's communicated across what we learn. But what I'm, what I'm trying to do both in the classroom, and I think we all share these, these ambitions, is to kind of give the, create and choreograph a kind of environment around which uh, the complexity of dimensions can be felt mm -hmm. in terms of an architecture project from the building materials and the policies that and the systems that connect those materials as options for us to use. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of selecting from someone's options already what we can use, uh, uh, different green qualifications or lead qualifications. Whatever it is, we start to meet a set of criteria that um, narrows down someone, where do we actually get to choose the conditions which generate options in the classroom and in the, in the world and the practice? This sounds like maybe a little bit out there, but very yeah. specifically, do we get an experience of 
do we do we teach what something means or do we get an experience of of meaning of creating meaning together with the community right. or with the community of students or with the community in terms of a public uh, a client or whatever you would call like a kind of base you're designing with yeah. Yeah, these are good questions. And, and, and for me, it brings to mind this in the process of doing those things and asking those questions, um, you start to understand like uh, architecture as a kind of uh, unique cultural practice that because of the capital investments that are involved in and, you know, having to deal with a client and all, and all of these issues, you you sort of have to wrestle with the, the reality of the world, right? Good, good bad, and, and otherwise. And, um, you know, a lot of times that, that process, when you frame it like that, it helps you to use architecture as a as a kind of uh, illustration of the these very abstract forces, right? I mean, we talk about capitalism, neoliberalism, and like uh, and, and and these different things. But but art, the power of art and, and architecture, um, is is often simply to elucidate these things. Well, do we, right. So do we create representations of reality? We render we create renderings of reality in hmm. architecture school. But do we render the world more real? I mean, and so I think where we're also working in is how do we how do we create a context in which we can actually have the experience of trying to act, you know render the world more real in a in a way. Well, and it's it's difficult to to replicate the kind of cognitive dissonance of the capital effects and the social effects and. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes students, you know, they'll tend to use this phrase in real life, you know, as though <laughs> right. what they're doing in school is not real. And I and I, I always repeat the same <laughs> mantra, which is that this is real. This is happening. Right. You know, I mean, you're what you are proposing is laced with whatever intentional or unintentional yeah. political conditions, most of which is actually repeating their own life experiences. And I think that's something that's particularly interesting in the in the context of IIT. Um, I, I teach at IIT. Yeah, we, we all, all do. We're actually. all IIT folks. <laughs> um, is that we have a really large uh, international student population, and I think that that what that brings is a conversation about assumed conditions in in cultures, and particularly in the studio that I I run, where we talk about housing and dwelling. It's, it's kind of amazing. You know, I'll have a conversation with a student talking about townhomes, and in a way he'll say, I have no idea what this is. You know, I understand the, the McMansion out in the suburbs and the massive high-rise, you know, from Beijing, let's say. And, but this townhome thing, I don't get it, you know. And so to try to talk about, you know, post-war housing in the United States or even, you know, you realize, like, this is great, actually. Mm-hmm. We get to have a, a conversation that maybe even questions some of my assumptions Right. In a way, and I, you know, I think in in some capacity, maybe it's because what I teach, um, the, the way that we frame historical conditions or existing conditions is often the best opportunity to talk about how architecture is the streets. And finally, this week saw a special live broadcast of fresh roasted live beat making and battle hosted by King Hippo and Bounce Handler. They invited beat makers to our Lumpen Studios to be randomly paired together and challenged to make a beat on the spot in just 90 minutes. Listeners judged and voted, awarding Team B, Uncle L, and Azarius the bragging rights. Participants included Pipe Attack, Remsky, Uncle L, Elijah Jamal, Koss, and Azarius. Stay tuned as the credits roll for that winning composition from Uncle L and Azarius. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. 
The Lumpin theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, Logan Bay, Brenda Hernandez, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. everybody is that that was uh, made in 90 minutes